Right, thanks, Angie. Uh, There's quite a few more difficult names. Um, right, so today we're going to talk... Uh, you've got to put this passage in the context of quite a bit of history, um, because on its own it seems like a, an interesting story and there's some strange little things in it, but you can only really understand the nuances of this story uh, with the history of what's gone on. Uh, before I do, talk about that, I once heard a story about a young boy who... It turned on here. Oh, sorry about that. Um, so I once heard a story about a young boy who, as part of his household chores, was assigned the task of sweeping uh, the snow from his drive uh, in the winter. Now, we don't have to worry about that here, but uh, one particularly snowy year, his father watched as the boy went out every morning and spent the better part of an hour clearing the drive. By the time he came in, he was exhausted. And as the weather got worse, the father continued to watch as the task became harder and harder. Finally came a particularly uh, bad storm and after an hour of slaving, the boy came in exhausted and with tears in his eyes proclaimed, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. I can't finish it. The father brought him a hot drink and sat him down. He said, son, you've been working hard. I'm really proud of you but you've forgotten to use all of the power that you have. Dad, you probably know where this is going. Dad, I've been working really hard. I haven't got anything more to give. Son, I'm really proud of you. You've worked really hard, but you've forgotten that within your power, you can ask for help. And for the rest of that winter, they worked together to clear the driveway. Now, that's quite a sweet story, isn't it? Very different from the story that we read, yeah, Angie just read just now. But part of the moral is the same, although even more profound. You have to remember that these people, the people of Israel, had been brought out of Egypt. This would have been, in recent, uh, recent history, this would have been passed down very recently, uh, maybe a two generations. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, so the ten plagues seems fantastical, doesn't it? Ten plagues um, and the separating of the, uh, the the Red Sea as they were brought out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt. By night there was a fiery pillar. By day there was a, a great big cloud that was leading the people forward. Very physical signs that God was there. God's presence was clear at Mount Sinai, and still they made a golden calf and rebelled. Later he provided water and then manna and then quail, and defeated their enemies, and eventually brought them to a plentiful land flowing with milk and honey. We saw in a video a few weeks ago about the book of Judges, uh, there's this repeated pattern in Judges. When they enter the land of Israel, there's this repeated pattern of the people of Israel doing their own thing. Ignoring God, his laws on holiness and, uh, and um, hospitality, especially their laws on, on those two, and anything that set them apart from the nations around them. And then a crisis would happen. Usually someone would come and conquer them, someone would attack them, 
and they would cry out. And God would raise up a leader, a judge. They were called the judges, that's why it's the book of Judges. And this judge would lead them back to God and he would save them. And everyone would cheer and promise to obey God and worship God. And then they would go back to the same thing. So there'd be this repeated cycle. They'd go back to doing their own thing. And in our sweet story at the beginning, it would be, it's much worse than that. It would be like the boy exhausting himself and the father then coming out without being asked for help and saying, why didn't you ask for help? And helping him. And then the next day, the boy would do exactly the same thing. Go out by himself, refusing to ask for help, ignoring the father's uh, offer for help, and exhausting himself to the point yeah, where he can't go on. And then the father coming out to give him help without being asked for help, telling him, you need to ask for help. Sounds like some of my students, actually, but just ask for help. You see, the Bible talks about God as a father. Time and time again, he wants to help us. It gets worse and worse with the Israelites worshipping other gods and even committing child sacrifices. The last story is a horrendous story. In the book of Judges, it's a story about rape and violence and something that leads to civil war in this holy set-apart nation that has clear laws on hospitality and holiness and love. And then there's this repeated phrase at the end of Judges. It's repeated four times, and Judges ends on this phrase. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let me read that again. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So as we come to the book of Samuel, as we read the narrative, we are praying and hoping and expecting a king. Someone who will lead the people of Israel, remind them of their God, make them a holy, and that, that word just means set apart, a holy, special nation that can show the world that the God, their God is the loving creator of the world. And now we come to this story. Well, we know about Saul, don't we? Some of us know about Saul. We learnt about it in maybe school or maybe at church. Uh, this is where I do my teacher thing. Who can tell me something about Saul? Hands up. Anyone know something about Saul? Otherwise, I'll start picking people. Yes. He was disobedient. What else? What? Yes, he was disobedient. Yes. He was really tall. Yes, he was a head above everyone else. Anyone? Anything else? He was a king. He was a king. Good. What other stories do we know about Saul? What what the what stories do we know him from? Come on. Yes. Well, he was. Uh... He was a king and he fell out of favor when he 
Yes. Instead of going to God, he went to a medium. Anything else? Who's, who's he most famously associated with? David. David. Okay, so he's the king that when Goliath of the Philistines comes out to challenge them, he sits back. He doesn't want to do anything. Instead, he lets this little boy go out. So he's in his full armor. He's an experienced soldier. He lets this little boy go out to, to face Goliath. Then, when, uh, when David comes to his palace, he tries to kill David. And then when David becomes popular, he tries to kill David again. So this is, we know Saul as the bad king. But this story is before all of, all of that. Like most of the kings in, in uh, well, the books of Kings uh, and the Chronicles, they all start off really well. Well, most of them. And this is the promising start that Saul makes. This is the king that we hope is going to be the king. The eternal king. The, the king who's going to save everything. This is the, going to be the answer to everything we've been looking for. Here. And in these early days, before he started to ignore advice from Samuel, he was a pretty good king. So if you just look back at chapter, chapter 10, we can see uh, that that's where he's made king. If you flip back to chapter 8, the people go to Samuel to ask for a king. Despite the fact that Samuel is their judge, that means their leader, and God should be enough for, for, for them, they ask for a king. Samuel tells them what a terrible burden a king will be. But the people ignore him and demand a king. And they say this. In chapter 8, they say, um, I forget which verse it is, um, uh, but it's near the end, sorry. Um, they say this, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Let me read that again. No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the other nations, uh, like all the nations, and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, if you've been listening and you know your history uh, of what's going on before, you can hear the alarm bells going. You can see the danger signs. Part of it is the fact that there's a very laziness, lazy attitude, isn't there? He'll go out and fight our battles for us. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, somebody else will sort it out. But even worse, and this is the damning statement, knowing what we, what's gone on before, that we also may be like all the nations. God's laws have been very specific about hospitality, about holiness, that they are set apart, they are different, they are Unique. They are God's people, God's chosen people. They're groundbreaking in their laws. Compare them to other nations at the time. Go and look at your history. No child sacrifices. Very strict laws about hospitality. Things that would even put our, our society to shame uh, about hospitality. They should be set apart. But this is where they've said... No, we don't want you as our leader. We don't want God. He is not enough. 
We want a king so that we may be like all the other nations, so that we can be like them. It's like saying to your parents, and in fact it's much worse, but it's like saying to your parents, why can't you be like Freddie's mum? Parents, how would you feel, how do you feel if someone, your child says that to you? Can you imagine? But this is so much worse. This is them saying that to God, the creator God who's saved them time and time again. We want to be just like everyone else. So God says to Samuel, give them what they want. And you know that this is going to end in disaster. And sometimes, sometimes, and I know this from experience, painful experience, when we pray and we ask for things and we beg for things, sometimes God gives us what we want even though it's not always good for us, that the greater good is done from us learning from that. So be careful what you pray for, because God may give it to you. So in chapter 10, Saul is made king, and all the people, are, all the people cheer. All the people are very happy, and they cheer. And now comes the strange part. This is the passage, today's passage. The Amalites come to invade Israel. They besiege the city of Jabesh. And like many bullies, they make they really, really push it. I don't know whether you come across any bullies. Uh, they don't just ask what's reasonable. Once they get what's reasonable, they, they push it. They, are, they make outrageous... Uh, uh, this is an outrageous and cruel deal gouge out your eye and make a treaty with us. All your men have to gouge out their right eye and make a de- uh, deal with us. Okay? What follows is even stranger. The men of Jabesh, the leaders of Jabesh say, okay, maybe. Let's call, uh, let's, uh, give us, give us uh, seven days. You see, they don't, they don't call on God. They have so far removed from the people that came out of Egypt that they don't call on God. They're so far removed from all the times in in the judges. They've come so far from that. They they don't even call out for God. This is a horrendous deal. Gouge out your right eye. Every single man in this city needs to gouge out the eye, their right eye. And they don't even send a messenger straight to Saul, their newly minted king, who is going to fight for them. Let's have a look down. Let's see what happens. They say, give us seven days. And they say, if no one responds, then we'll gouge out our eyes and sign your treaty. So they're not even that hopeful that the rest of Israel will come to their aid. Give us seven days. Hopefully, maybe somebody will come to our aid. And they send out messengers to everyone. Now, what's, what's Saul doing? Well, he's coming in from plowing from the fields. So it goes to his town. The messenger goes to his town. And they don't even bother to get, get, come and get Paul. Uh, Saul. Saul is coming in from the field. What kind of king is that? They don't understand what this king is supposed to do yet. They, they're, they're so used to living their own way. 
And you see, that's the problem. They're so used to living their own way that they don't yet recognize that this king is supposed to be their leader. He's been appointed by God. But Saul rouses the people. It's a pretty grim way of rousing the people, cutting up an ox and sending it to everyone. But I think that was the thing in those days. And says, this is going to happen to your oxen if you don't, uh, if you don't come. Okay, I'm going to come and chop up your oxen. Okay. Um, and Saul rouses the people and saves the city of Jabesh. Saul, God's chosen man, comes to save God's chosen people. How many, people, how many times have we heard that repeated through the Bible? God's chosen man comes to save God's chosen people. And he leads them back to worship God. And for, for those, who, uh, those who are noticing, and, and with the recent Women's Day, you'll notice that uh, Deborah is one of the, uh, the judges. So just to, to give a nod to World Women's Day the week before last. So, but God's chosen person leads his people back to God, saves his people and leads them back to the worship of God. So what do we learn from this? I mean, it's easy to look at this passage and think that this directly relates to us. And you've got to be a little bit careful of that. Uh, Like my story at the beginning, we cannot keep doing things our own way, by our own power, ignoring God. God who created us, so he knows how we work and how the world works. We can't just keep ignoring him. The Bible talks about him as the Father over and over again. He is waiting for us to ask for his help. But I think we need to look beyond this in a bigger way. The people of Israel, it would be quite arrogant to think, oh, the people of Israel, their trials are just kind of representing us, just me. Um, So we need to think about it as a warning to the church, because we, as a church, are the people, God's chosen people. It's very clear in the New Testament that as a church, we are separate, asked to be holy and set apart. Paul talks about us as a, a royal priesthood. That means with a direct line to God. Um, saints, that's from a similar kind of origin, uh, similar words in the Aramaic, I think, uh, of being set apart. We cannot ignore God and we cannot say we want to be like everyone else. I think I've talked about this before, but a few years ago I gave a talk in my school about the highly controversial topic of the, of the role of women in the Church of England. Okay, if you want to ask me about that, you talk to me about it afterwards. But at the end of the talk, uh, someone, you know, a girl put up her hand and said, why would the church have this stance? Do they, you know, don't they care about being unpopular? And my answer was this. Throughout the whole of church history, there have always been groups that have broken away and they watered down the message or they changed the message. To become popular, to be relevant, and 
I don't want to be harsh on them, but this is what we call liberal Christianity today. People who choose to ignore part of what the, the Bible says, to say the Bible's not totally relevant today. Well, we can take and choose, pick and choose our bits. Well, whenever that's happened, whenever it gets no longer distinctive or true to what it means to be a Christian, then those groups have blended into society and blended into obscurity. That's a warning to us. We must stay true to God's teaching. We must be distinctive. Here's the teaching, Jesus' teaching on being salt and light, isn't it? Right here. Be distinctive. Do not ask to be like all the other nations, all the other people groups. So, what does that mean? Well, we can't compromise on Christian teachings. That can be from the teaching, difficult teachings on sexual ethics. Or even uh, the uniqueness of the Christian message. You'll hear that, well, Christianity is like every other, uh, every other religion. You'll hear that, won't you? I just had a, a talk with one of my colleagues about, well, he said, well, the Christian God's just like the, the Muslim God and the, the, uh, the Jewish God. And I argued with him about this. Um, and he said, well, just because we worship in different ways, it's still the same God. But I said, no, it's not the same God. Yeah. He's revealed to us in his character. All about the very simple message of the res- death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is so central. And yet you will hear in churches, and you will hear prominent Christians say no. There's a guy called Steve Chalk, who I think I've talked about him before in, in England, who said, actually, I don't believe in that because it's tantamount to child abuse on a cosmic scale. To deny the death and resurrection of Christ, of Jesus, is to deny the central message of the Bible, is to deny God's love. And if you go to other churches, I don't know how many of you have visited lots of churches, but you'll hear, you'll often hear the preacher not referring to the Bible at all. Or you'll hear the, the preaching, um, a very bland message about being good or even looking after the environment. I don't think that's a bad thing. But if it's solely about that, then there's a problem, isn't there? If, there's, if they don't ever refer to the Bible, then what are they preaching? It's troubling, isn't it? That so many churches are doing this. Right, so let's have a look also at other messages. Secondly, this passage is more about God's character. So yes, we need to reflect on our sin and the sin of us, us as a church, but we need to be looking at God. As a loving father, he does not forsake his children when they go astray. Now, you may think you have difficult children. I have difficult children in my boarding house. Uh, we have a difficult we have a reputation for having difficult boys in my boarding house. He is, God is far more 
patient, far more generous, far more kind and loving than any human parent could ever be. His people have ignored his laws, his love, their shared history, the number of times he has saved them and the prophets and king, kings he sent to guide them time and again. And finally, they ignored Jesus. And furthermore, they killed Jesus. They crucified him in the most horrendous way. What parent could do more for their child? This speaks to us of a faithful God. A God who does not change. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has, he, has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he and will not fulfill it? He does not change. He is a faithful God. He is a loving God. He is an interceding God. He intercedes. He, unlike what Descartes says about God, he intervenes in history. He's demonstrated that time and time again throughout the Bible and actually through miracles that still happen today. Now, he doesn't promise that there will be miracles that will happen today, but or supernatural miracles, but they do still happen. And I'm sure all of you have at least heard of them or know somebody who a miracle has happened to. And all of these points point to my final point. Human leaders rise and fall. They're fallible. Saul made a great start, but then started to ignore God's instructions. He thought he could all do, uh, do it all himself. The great kings of the Jewish history who followed Saul, David, the great king who had a heart. Uh, he was a man after God's own heart. That's what it says. He failed. Read the end a few chapters after his life. And Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived apparently, he failed. No happily ever afters for these stories. It all points forward, and we're all hoping for that one king. Not human, sort of. Both man and God. The one who could save us. The one who would die to restore the relationship with God. The relationship that was broken back in Eden. You see, we're not. it's not about being a great, a great nation, being better than all the other nations. It's about restoring that original break of the relationship back in Eden. That's what Jesus came to do, and that's what the Jews didn't understand. The Jews thought, we're going to be a great nation again. We're going to conquer all the, we're going to overthrow the Romans. We're going to conquer all the nations around us. We're going to be the greatest nation on earth. No. The true problem was that broken relationship in Eden. And this points back forward. This story points forward to thinking we need a savior. We need a king and we need a savior. Now, as a teacher, one thing I really cannot stand is how easily my students just lie to me. They will look me in the face, look me in the eye, and they will lie to me. I really, really hate that. One of the students we had an instance of bullying uh, the week before last. One of the sixth form students who knows me quite well, I, I know him quite well, 
he comes along to my sixth form Bible study, looked me in the eye twice, and he lied to me. And he said, uh, he's, uh, it was some kind of slightly deluded idea that he was trying to protect a friend. I don't understand that. And when he apologized, I forgave him. I said, I forgive you. Now, I could do that because that offense was to me. He had lied to me, but he apologized. And I said, I forgive you. Now, I'm going to work out what that means. You know, that will mean that I will continue to, to treat him just the way I did before. Um, I'm not going to, obviously not going to forget it, but it's, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't say that we forgive, oh, sorry, forget, but we do forgive. So we treat them as we, we do before. We love them the same. But for us who ignore God's instructions, we continually to live our own life. We say we want to be like everyone else. We don't want to live according to your rules. We ignore God in our daily lives. Well, we need forgiveness from Jesus. We need forgiveness from God. It is the offence to him, to God, that we've made by ignoring him. Imagine if your, yeah, if your children just chose to live their life, they'll, they'll, they'll happily eat your food, and they'll happily live under your roof, but then they don't want to talk to you. They'll happily take your money and spend it any way they, they want to, but they don't want, they won't say happy birthday on your birthday or visit you for Christmas. They'll, they'll live their life completely ignorant of you. And when asked about their parents, they'll say, who? Who are they? And that's what we're doing. If we ignore God's laws, if we live the way that we do uh, our own lives, and how easily, even as Christians, do we do that? Then our fence is against God. And we need a saviour and a king to lead us back. And so as Christians, we cannot help but read passages like this and think we need a saviour and a king. When you read a passage about the kings in the Old Testament, the judges, think as a person and as a church, we need a saviour. We need a saviour and a king. And these point forward to the great king, Jesus so, to summarise, as a church, this is a clear warning to stay, uh, to not stray from loving and worshipping and obeying God. See, those three things, they're the same thing. Loving, worshipping and obeying. They can't come without, one can't come without another. Secondly, we have an eternal father who is loving and faithful, far more than we can ever imagine. He longs for us to ask for his help. Finally, all of these stories point to the great king, Jesus. And as we read these stories, we need to be looking to him to save us and to lead us to God. Let me pray. Father, help us to repent, to 
change our lives, to no longer want to be like all of the other nations, all the other people around us. The people who don't know your love, don't know your salvation, don't have a promised eternity. Help us not to long to be like them. Help us as a church not to give in to being wanting to be popular. Help us to keep our leaders, elders, pastors accountable to preaching your word, to keeping to your laws for great witness for you. And Lord, we thank you for sending your son to die for us so that we can have a restored relationship with you and that we can have a promised eternity. Help us and remind us constantly because because we are weak and we fall and we fail. Help us and remind us. Give us strength to face each day in your loving care. In Jesus' name, Amen.